Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. Now today we have a ghost story of a very different kind for you. These readings were recorded live before a virtual audience on our Discord server. See our show notes at blasphemoustomes.com for more details. Welcome to the Good Friends of the Good Friends reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. For tonight's stave three, I'll be joined once more by Rena Henzi. Hello. Dom Allen. Hello. And Scott Dorwood. Hello. Tonight, Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by another mysterious spirit of Christmas. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Stave three, the second of the three spirits. Awaking, Scrooge found himself in his bedroom. There was no doubt about that. But it and his own adjoining sitting-room, into which he shuffled in his slippers, attracted there by a great light, had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked like a perfect grove. The leaves of holly, mistletoe and ivy reflected back the light as if many little mirrors had been scattered there. And such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that petrifaction of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped upon the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and great bowls of punch. In easy state upon this couch, there sat a giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and who raised it high to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. Come in, come in, and know me better, man. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. You have never seen the like of me before? Never. Have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, for I am very young, my elder brothers born in these late years? I don't think I have. I am afraid I have not. Have you had many brothers' spirit? More than eighteen hundred. A tremendous family to provide for. Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learnt a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast. The room and its contents all vanished instantly, and they stood in the city streets upon a snowy Christmas morning. Scrooge and the ghost passed on, invisible, straight to Scrooge's clerks, and on the threshold of the door the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinklings of his torch. Think of that, 
Bob had but fifteen bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, brave in ribbons, which are cheap to make, and make a goodly show for sixpence and she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, whilst Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes, and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt-collar, Bob's private property conferred upon his son and heir in honour of the day, into his mouth, rejoined to find himself so gallantly attired, and yearned to show his linen to the fashionable park and now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the baker's they had smelt the goose and known it for their own, and basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he, not proud although his collars nearly choked him, blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled what has ever got your precious father then said mrs cratchit and your brother tiny tim and martha weren't as late last christmas by half an hour here's martha mother cried the two young cratchits hurrah there's such a goose martha why bless your heart alive my dear how late you are said mrs cratchit kissing her a dozen times and taking off her shawl and bonnet for her now sit you down before the fire, dear, and have a warm, Lord bless you. No, no, there's father coming, cried the two young Cratchits, who were everywhere at once. Hide, Martha, hide! So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob, the father, with at least three feet of comforter, exclusive of the fringe, hanging down before him. And his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch, and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where's our Martha? cried Bob Cratchit, looking round. Not coming. Not coming? said Bob, with a sudden declension in his high spirits, for he had been Tim's blood horse all the way from church, and had come home rampant. Not coming upon Christmas Day? Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, if it were only in joke. So she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms, while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off to the wash-house, that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. "'And how did our little Tim behave?' asked Mrs. Cratchit, when she had rallied Bob on his credulity, and Bob had hugged his daughter to his heart's content. "'As good as gold and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful, sitting by himself so much.' and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this, and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and hearty. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool beside the fire. And while Bob, turning up his cuffs, as if, poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons, and stirred it round and round, and put it on the hob to simmer, 
Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigour. Miss Belinda sweetened up the apple sauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their posts, crammed spoons into their mouths, lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. At last the dishes were set on, and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause, as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving-knife, prepared to plunge it in the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all around the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife and feebly cried, Hurrah! There never was such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there was ever such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavour, size and cheapness, were themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, as Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying one small atom of a bone upon the dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. Yet everyone had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now, the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witness, to take up the pudding and bring it in. Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should break in turning out. Suppose somebody should have got over the wall of the backyard and stolen it while they were merry with the goose. A supposition at which the two young Cratchits became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hello! A great deal of steam! The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like washing day. That was the cloth. A smell like an eating-house and a pastry-cook's next door to each other with a laundress's next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly, with the pudding, like a speckled cannonball so hard and firm, blazing in half of half a quartern of ignited brandy, and bedight with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding! Bob Cratchit said, and calmly too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind, she would confess she had had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it. But nobody said or thought it was at all a small pudding for a large family. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. At last the dinner was all done, the cloth was cleared, the hearth swept and the fire made up. The compound in the jug being tasted and considered perfect, apples and oranges were put upon the table and a shovelful of chestnuts on the fire. Then 
All the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, and at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass. Two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done, and Bob served it out with beaming looks while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and crackled noisily. Then Bob proposed... A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. Which all the family re-echoed. God bless us, everyone, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his, as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Scrooge raised his head speedily on hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge, I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. Oh, the founder of the feast indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I hope he'd have good appetite for it. My dear, the children, Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, on which one drinks the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fella. My dear, Christmas Day. <sighs> I'll drink his health for your sake, and the day's not for his. Long life to him, a merry Christmas and a happy new year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings which had no heartiness in it. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care two pence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for full five minutes. After it had passed away, they were ten times merrier than before, from the mere relief of Scrooge the Baleful being done with. Bob Cratchit, told them how he had a situation in his eye for Master Peter, which would bring in, if obtained, full five and sixpence weekly. The two young Cratchits laughed tremendously at the idea of Peter's being a man of business, and Peter himself looked thoughtfully at the fire from between his collars, as if he were deliberating what particular investments he should favour when he came into the receipt of that bewildering income. Martha, who was a poor apprentice at a milliner's, then told them what kind of work she had to do, and how many hours she worked at a stretch, and how she meant to lie abed tomorrow morning for a good long rest, tomorrow being a holiday she passed at home. Also, how she had seen a countess and a lord some days before, and how the lord was much about as tall as Peter, at which Peter pulled up his collars so high that you couldn't have seen his head if you'd been there. All this time, the chestnuts and the jug went round and round, and by and by they had a song about a lost child travelling in the snow from Tiny Tim, who had a plaintive little voice and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty. And Peter might have known, and very likely did, the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another and contented with the time. And when they faded, and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, 
Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, as this scene vanished, to hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognise it as his own nephew's, and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room, with the spirit standing smiling by his side, and looking at that same nephew. It is a fair, even-handed, noble adjustment of things, that while there is infection in disease and sorrow, there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humour. When Scrooge's nephews laughed, Scrooge's niece by marriage laughed as heartily as he, and their assembled friends, being not a bit behindhand, laughed out lustily. He said that Christmas was a humbug as I live. He believed it too, cried Scrooge's nephew. More shame for him, Fred, said Scrooge's niece indignantly. <laughs> Bless these women, they never do anything by halves, they're always in earnest. She was very pretty, exceedingly pretty with a dimpled, surprised-looking, capital face, a sweet little mouth that seemed made to be kissed, as no doubt it was, all kinds of good little dots about her chin that melted into one another when she laughed, and the sunniest pair of eyes you ever saw. He's a comical old fellow, that's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offences carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself! always. Here he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He don't lose much of a dinner. Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner, interrupted Scrooge's niece. Everyone else said the same, and they must be allowed to have been competent judges because they had just had dinner, and with the dessert upon the table were clustered around the fire by lamplight. Well, I'm very glad to hear it because I haven't any great faith in these young housekeepers. What do you say, Topper? Topper clearly had his eye on one of Scrooge's niece's sisters, for he answered that a bachelor was a wretched outcast who had no right to express an opinion on the subject. Whereas Scrooge's niece's sister, the plump one with the lace tucker, not the one with the roses, blushed. After tea, they had some music, for they were a musical family, and knew what they were about when they sung a glee or a catch, I can assure you. Especially Topper, who could growl away in the bass like a good one, and never swell the large veins in his forehead or get red in the face over it. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while, they played at forfeits, for it is good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. There was first a game at Blind Man's Buff, though. And... I no more believed Topper was really blinded than I believe he had eyes in his boots, because the way in which he went after that sister in a lace tucker was an outrage on the credulity of human nature. Knocking down the fire irons, tumbling over the chairs, bumping up against the piano, smothering himself among the curtains, wherever she went, there went he. He wouldn't catch anyone else. If you had fallen up against him, as some of them did, he would instantly have sidled off in the direction of the plump sister. Here is a new game. Uh, one half-hour spirit. Uh, only one. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something, and the rest must find out what, he only answering to their questions yes or no, as the case was. 
the fire of questioning to which he was exposed elicited from him that he was thinking of an animal, a live animal, a rather a disagreeable animal, a savage animal, an animal that growled and grunted sometimes, and talked sometimes, and lived in London, and walked about the streets, and wasn't led by anybody, and didn't live in a menagerie, and was never killed in a market, and was not a horse, or an ass, or a cow, or a bull, or a tiger, or a dog, or a pig, or a cat, or a bear. At every new question put to him, this nephew burst into a fresh roar of laughter, and was so inexpressibly tickled that he was obliged to get up off the sofa and stamp. At last, the plump sister cried out, I have found it out! I know what it is, Fred! I know what it is! What is it? It's your Uncle Scrooge! Which it certainly was. Admiration was the sentiment, though some objected that the reply to, Is it a bear? ought to have been yes. Uncle Scrooge had imperceptibly become so gay and light of heart that he would have drank to the unconscious company in an inaudible speech. For the whole scene passed off in the breath of the last words spoken by his nephew, and he and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirits stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful. On foreign lands, and they were close at home, by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope. By poverty, and it was rich. In almshouse, hospital, and jail, in misery's every refuge, where a vain man in his little brief authority had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out, he left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts. Suddenly, as they stood together in an open place, the bell struck twelve. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it no more. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and lifting up his eyes beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. End of Stave 3. We hope you enjoyed tonight's reading. Please join us again at the same time tomorrow for Stave 4, in which a third spirit takes the hand of Mr. Ebenezer Scrooge.